Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Chris Newby, who is an award-winning science writer, senior producer of the Lyme disease documentary Under Our Skin, and the award-winning author of Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons, which I'm just about to finish reading. You can see it on my Kindle. I highly recommend it. And uh, welcome to Geopolitics and Empire, Chris. Thanks. And thanks for the invitation. I, I really have listened to a few of your episodes. I find them really interesting. Good choice of topics, too. Yeah, biological warfare, germ warfare, uh, fun times. And, um, you know, I, I'm always interested in exploring uh, this topic. I, I've got guests on from time to time to, to cover it. Uh, I've had Jeffrey Kay, who's been looking into uh, germ warfare in the 1950s. And I, I did uh, interview uh, the Bioweapons Act author, Francis Boyle, uh, back in January of 2020, uh, the first to get his thought on uh, coronavirus. And that interview went viral, 300,000 views. And uh, they took it down and and so on and so forth. But uh, maybe we could start with your uh, book, Bitten. Uh, we can't do it justice in the short time that we have, which is why I recommend people uh, get it and, and read it. And maybe, you know, you, if you could tell us about the book, Lyme disease, uh, what you discovered, uh, how it's basically biological uh, warfare and how, you know, the government's got all these secret projects. They're deceiving us. And actually, my former pastor in Mexico got Lyme disease recently, and it was a, a very de debilitating kind of, of Lyme uh, disease. And so, yeah, uh, you know, where to start? Uh, well, I started out in 2002 as a tech writer, and then my family went to Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts uh, for a vacation. And we came back to California, and my husband and I got really, really sick with some unknown disease. It took the California medical system a year, 10 doctors, $60,000 to finally get diagnosed with two tick-borne diseases. It's um, Lyme disease and babesiosis, which is a malaria-like disease, red blood cell infection. So that was my first eye-opening experience with the U.S. medical system, which works great for well checks. But when you have a, a mysterious chronic disease... Uh, everything falls apart. And I, I think people listening to this, uh, my hope is that we can learn from the mistakes that were done with Lyme disease, especially with this even bigger problem, which is chronic COVID, long COVID. So um, after I find the, found the right doctor who had a lot of experience in tick-borne diseases, uh, I was well enough in a year to start a, a documentary, which is called Under Our Skin. You can still watch it if you have free for Amazon Prime. And it really, uh, I went from tech writing to the deep dive in medical science uh, writing because I had so many questions about why this disease was so broken. And I teamed up with a great documentary do documentarian, Andy Wilson in Marin. And together we went on this journey, three and a half years, filming people all over the nation who have chronic Lyme. And I was the researcher, investigator, and really took the deep dive on uh, why our medical system is broken, the profit incentives, um, you know, the influence of pharma and insurance companies in denying care to these people who are truly sick. And the movie um, still watched widely because there are a half a million new Lyme disease cases a year. It's a built-in audience, unfortunately. And I have to say, after 40 years since this disease was discovered, 
it was for the causative agent, same year as HIV AIDS, the causative agent was discovered. Uh, not much has gotten better, has improved for patients on the ground. We still uh, have no accurate testing that works in the first month. And afterwards, it's no better than a coin flip. We have a 30% failure rate for treatment. Um, refusal to acknowledge the chronic form of Lyme disease, which I think a lot of COVID people are finding. And a relentless race, rise of case, cases. So anyways, I, I launched the film and uh, it was an Oscar semifinalist, which is pretty amazing for a disease film, uh, for someone to sit for an hour and a half and watch this downer picture. Um, and after that, I told my husband, okay, I'm, I'm better now from Lyme. I've given my pound of flesh for the Lyme cause. I'm moving on and I got a really great job as a science writer at Stanford University. But then a couple things happened and I just couldn't walk away from the story. And the first one was that uh, a filmmaker friend of mine interviewed Willy Bergdorfer, who was the Swiss German American discoverer of the Lyme disease organism who worked for 30 plus years at for the NIH in Hamilton, Montana. He's the lead tick researcher in the U.S., celebrated for discovering Lyme disease. And he admitted to this filmmaker that he worked in the biological weapons program for years when he first came to America. So that was pretty shocking. And then the second thing is I ended up in a random family party uh, in Texas, and I ran across a guy who used to work for his whole career as a dark ops CIA operative. And he was into his cops and regaled us with many stories of the horrible things he did in Vietnam. But at the end of this jaw dropping uh, dossier, I mean, list of things he did, he said, you know, the strangest thing I ever did was drop boxes of infected ticks on Cuban sugar cane workers. <laughs> in the 60s. So he had no idea who I was. And I took, I kept on running to the bathroom to take notes because I knew this was like jaw dropping. It was the first proof that we had done, hard proof that we had done um, bug borne weapons, use them on foreign, foreign soil. So anyways, at that point, I said, well, I have this full time job, really great as a science writer. But I was in the middle of Stanford. I had a lot of resources I could call on. And I said, I really, uh, I, have, I have to follow this story to the end. And so that started uh, the research for my book, Bitten, which took five years all in all. And um, so it's been doing pretty well, but it's a lot like the lab leak theories. It was met with derision in the beginning. I was labeled as a conspiracy theorist. I don't think I got any major media uh, inter uh, reviews of the book, even though it it's won three International Book Awards. It got a starred Kirkus Review, which is the people that review new books that come out. And to get a starred review is really good. So that's that's how the book started. <laughs> a message from our sponsors. It seems we may be headed for the 1930s all over again. Financial collapse, tyranny, and world war. 
I've already secured multiple passports, offshore accounts, safe havens, and escaped to the sunnier shores of Mexico. My friend Mikkel Thorup of the Expat Money Show is hosting the Expat Money Summit with 30-plus experts that'll help you reclaim freedom in this fourth turning by moving your life and wealth offshore. Protect yourself and secure a new life abroad. Register now for free at expatmoneysummit.com or don't and enjoy surviving on insect protein while stuck in the metaverse. Since 2020, Ron Unz of Unz.com has argued the COVID outbreak was due to a U.S. biowarfare attack against China and Iran. Jeffrey Sachs, the Russian Ministry of Defense, and others are now making similar suggestions. Weeks before COVID appeared in Wuhan, a top U.S. biowarfare official ran the Crimson Contagion exercise on how to protect America against infection if a dangerous virus suddenly appeared in China. After COVID appeared in Wuhan, it jumped to Iran, infecting Iranian leadership only weeks after America had assassinated Iran's military commander. Iran publicly accused America of an illegal biowarfare attack and filed a complaint with the UN. Ron Unz has produced a free ebook and is available for interviews to further discuss this issue. And don't forget to fund Geopolitics and Empire. You can leave a donation, except on Patreon or PayPal, which have banned us, book a consultation, or become a member. You know, this, I mean, this is a very touchy subject. I remember uh, talking, I mean, I've interviewed Dr. Boyle uh, over the years. And I mean, he said he, when he started talking about this in 2001 and, and, and anthrax, which you briefly uh, mentioned in your book uh, as well, that he's been blacklisted by the mainstream uh, media. So just as you're saying now, we're really getting into a field that's very sensitive for the powers that be for the defense uh, industrial complex. And then maybe if we could then uh, look into that, the bioweapons uh, aspect, you know, you talk about, you know, basically to get you to tell us, you know, how you see this, this biological weapons industrial complex, there's Fort Detrick, uh, you've got Plum Island, which you mentioned in your book, which I think is defunct, but I read earlier this year, they're building uh, new facilities, more than one in the U.S. So I think one in the one massive one in the Midwest, maybe somewhere in Kansas, and then uh, like another one which is meant to replace Plum uh, Island. And so, you know, y- your further thoughts on bio warfare? Yeah. So it started after World War II. The Russians and us split up the, the German scientists. We we took a, you know, we were the ones who were interrogated the Japanese scientists. And what we found out is there was this pretty large biological weapons um, thing going on in those countries. Germany supposedly never deployed them. Japan definitely did. And so uh, after that, the U.S. really said, well, we have to up our game on biological weapons. And this is the same time the nuclear program, the Manhattan Project started ramping up. So I would say the biological weapons program was almost as big as Manhattan and certainly had the same secrecy rules and protocols in place. And through my research, I realized that the Bugborn weapons program was much larger and more secretive than anybody had realized. And I've, I've spoken a lot with Jeffrey Kay, and it's, it's great to talk to him because he followed his obsession is uh, the Korean War, the use of biological weapons in the Korean War, which lots of circumstantial evidence. And he's trying to get the proof because so many of these documents were destroyed and this whole disinformation system kicked into place. And then we have a slight overlap because I started my research in 51, which is the Cold War bio, uh, bug-borne weapons program. 
So there's, there's a lot of overlap there. And then the main character in my book, Willie Bergdorfer, who was really a key player in the Bugborn weapons program, was hired to help refine the, the insect delivery uh, methods for the Korean War, then the Vietnam War. So, uh, and we don't have proof on use in the Vietnam War, just uh, anecdotal proof on the Vietnam War. But when I first really sat down with Willie Bergdorfer after the Cuban tick confession, I mean, the stuff he said was just so shocking. His first job when he came from Switzerland, the Swiss Tropical Institute was to put plague in fleas so you could drop the fleas on your enemy and that would cause mass casualties. Then there was a particularly virulent form of yellow fever in Trinidad and they brought that over and then he tried to figure out ways to put it in mosquitoes. And then his specialty was ticks. He'd worked with soft body ticks from Africa when he was in Switzerland and so um, in Africa, it's mostly relapsing fever, which is a little spirochete. Um, Lyme disease is also a spirochete, and it's mostly in hard ticks, deer ticks, black leg ticks. So his assignment, he was a contractor working for the Public Health Service, which then became NIH. And his contracts, he would take, and he worked at Fort Diedrich, that's the head of the Chemical and Biological Weapons Program, periodically in Maryland and then also Rocky Mountain. So his job was to take an assignment from Fort Detrick. Okay, we want a chronically incapacitating disease that can be put into a bug. So he would take, you know, there was one experiment where he would put Venezuelan equine encephalitis inside of ticks, rabies, yellow fever, just to see what what would stick. So it's really accelerating nature. In nature, there's just like in a given area, there's one tick where one disease um, works well with, you know, is symbiotic with it. It doesn't kill the tick. It can pass its genes on. And it doesn't kill too many people because over evolution has made sort of a balance. But when you put strange diseases and strange ticks and drop them in foreign countries, it can wreak a lot of havoc. So that, that was, uh, that was the shocking interview that, really launched the book. But then I hit a wall because I realized most of those documents were destroyed in, as of 19, from 1969 to 72, uh, when the biological weapons program ended. And But the government, a bureaucracy, always keeps copies here and there, finance documents, and in this case, Willie Bergdorfer had saved copies in his secret little garage. So as he got to the end of his life, he felt uh, remorse, I guess, for the things he did. And he released the documents to an adjunct professor at BYU in Utah and said, I want these saved for posterity, put into an archive. So that... Professor, I knew that professor and he knew I was working on Willie's biography and he said, would you like to look at them? So that, that was sort of a breakthrough. The book never would have been there without really backups of uh, Dietrich reports, lab notes, letters. So 
I could really put together the arc of his life of how he was an ambitious young scientist researcher, wanted to do good, save lives from tropical medicine. And then all of a sudden he finds himself in the middle of this biological weapons program. And I think it's a lot like joining the CIA or the mafia. Everything's secret. And once you're there, you can't leave. Hotel California. <laughs> you can check in, but you can never leave, especially with a scientist, because what is he going to do? He can't publish about putting plague in fleas and how great that was. Uh, so, yeah, it's, stuck. it's it's interesting. You mentioned Jeff K. I just uh, talked to him last night. I had my live TNT radio program. And so he was my guest uh, last night. He had just published his latest uh, Medium blog post uh, on some of, on what we've been uh, talking about. So, I mean, basically, it seems then. What what they did was you just mentioned that they they were putting stuff into the ticks, and then you know once that gets into nature, you can't close that Pandora's box. No, I mean like that's it. That's out in nature. Uh, you know that's probably one reason they want to keep quiet because they, they'd be responsible for that. And I guess there's no way now to. to I mean it's just out there, and you said people are getting sick every year, uh, half a million people or so, and there's no putting the genie back in the bottle. No. Right. And climate change is making it worse because, well, there's there's two issues with the tick-borne diseases. One is they were trying to weaponize this Lone Star tick, which uh, in, in the 13 colonies up in the Northeast, before there was a deer tick, uh, pretty much just sits around and waits for, sits on a blade of grass and waits for a mammal to go by. But Lone Stars were much more hardy and aggressive. They have primitive eye buds, so they stalk their prey and swarm, in addition to sensing CO2. And then they carry, they carried, um, well, they carry a couple bad diseases that the deer tick didn't. And one is Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, which is the most deadly bacteria, tick-borne bacteria. And then also their saliva is in inducing this red meat allergy so in some people you get bitten by a lone star and you uh can never enjoy a hamburger or a t-bone bone steak again or otherwise you get anaphylactic shock or a rash or some severe allergic reaction so anyways the military in their wisdom said this is a great tick it can uh survive any winter it's very aggressive we can we can put diseases in these ticks and like release them in Ukraine or Russia or wherever. I don't, I mean, there's no proof of that yet that that's happened uh, and it'll weaken the population. And then we'll go in with ground forces or bombs. and It'll be easier to take care of. And the Russians were doing the same. Uh, it was just uh, a bug born weapons escalation. So uh, let's see. Oh, so the, the freakiest experiment I learned about is so, they wanted to figure out how to mass produce these ticks and Willie helped with that. And then they had a, a researcher at Old Dominion University who was very ambitious and, and he was running the tick-borne diseases. So he got lone stars, he mass produced them, he made them radioactive and then he re released them in a large field that was divided into one meter grids. And then he would go back between like 1967 to 1969 and then, uh, the ticks were radioactive. So he could track how far they'd gone with a Geiger counter. So he would see how far they'd gone. 
then put them back in the grid where he collected them and wait for a few more months. So the problem with that is uncontrolled, uh, pretty much non-native tick for that area. He was releasing hundreds of thousands of them, and the numbers are in my book. And then that coastal Virginia town where he did the experiments is on the Atlantic bird flyway. So those birds go from South America to the Caribbean, you know, up along the East Coast, and then up Great Lakes, Canada. And a bird can go from Virginia to Long Island in like five days. He measured that, so he knows that. And all of a sudden, this lone star tick became established in Long Island around the late 60s, and when, or two years after his experiments, and there were, there were unusual outbreaks of deadly spotted fever on Long Island. So my book starts with, I, I looked at, you know, recent history says, oh, Lyme disease started 1981 when Willie uh, discovered the Lyme disease bacterium. And I go, oh, I started looking at the backstory because it's never just one discovery. Like there was a slow burn. And what I discovered is there were three nasty tick-borne diseases that all of a sudden happened in that New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Jersey area. Uh, this crazy Lyme disease, it was supposedly new. Um, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, a version of it, and uh, Babesiosis, which is a cattle parasite. And it was second time in man in that area. So you look at an outbreak like that, all tick-borne de diseases, it's just unusual. It's not what would happen in nature. So what I do in the book is talk about the backstory and how unusual it is. And then it sets it up for Willie Bergdorfer uh, finally telling me, well, I, and the other filmmaker, and it's on video. I think that the discovery, there was something else besides Lyme disease that was making people sick. And that was a, a bacterium closely related to Rocky Mountain spotted fever called a rickettsia. It's well documented that the military was developing rickettsias in large vats, aerosolizing them so they could spread over large quantities. They did that with anthrax and Q fever. Uh, tularemia, which is another tick-borne disease. So uh, I don't know that Willie, Willie said accidents happened, which was very ambiguous. So there, I end the book with a lot of theories on what could have happened, but I, I think it's, there's pretty strong evidence that it was an unnatural event, call it a tick lab leak if you want. And, and so I think as we face this COVID lab leak theory, it helps to know what happened in the past and how the military dealt with it and how they become really good at cover-ups and maybe new, the new wave of journalists can use that to understand what happened with COVID. Yeah, maybe we could uh, look at that. And as well, I, I uh, you seem to touch on in your book, DNA-specific uh, bioweapons. Uh, you, you, you write, quote, Weapons designers were looking for a tick that wouldn't arouse the suspicion of an enemy country filled with an agent for which the target enemy population wouldn't have natural uh, immunity. That That is sort of like DNA specific because this group of people don't have the uh, immunity. And um, in the in the COVID era, the last two years, um, you know, maybe we can transition to 
uh, your view on what's been going on the last two years. We've got Jeffrey Sachs coming out, um, the Russian Ministry of Defense um, saying, positing the theory that this was a U.S. biowarfare uh, agent, you know, whether it's a leak or intentional. Uh, As well, Dr. Boyle says, I'd agree with him. I mean, they were working with the Chinese as well. I mean, because you had they were outsourcing the stuff. I mean, to African labs, to Wuhan. Uh, I mean, doing all of this stuff in general, like uh, the U.S. outsources it to countries where it's li- not illegal, because doing it within the U.S. is supposed to be uh, illegal. So that that's why I think they uh, outsource it, and many countries are doing this, right? The Russians, as you said, uh, do this. The Chinese, and maybe a few other countries. I think Britain, uh, Israel, you know, maybe France or someone. But yeah, you, I mean, y- your thoughts on the whole. Uh, corona episode because there was all this censorship in the beginning but now it just, I, I can't see it as, as natural it just for me it just seems like this this it, the, the, the natural version just doesn't cut it but i mean y- your thoughts here yeah so a friend i'll say i'm not an expert on covid i'm i'm specializing in one lab lake which is the ticks and tick-borne diseases uh, but there are some commonalities and at stanford I was a science writer in the clinical trials group. So I I know that it's, we have a certain layer of safety in conducting clinical trials here in the U S and it's because of that, it's very expensive to do clinical trials and we have a lot of ethical oversight. So a lot of ambitious researchers will move these sketchy experiments overseas uh, to save money and, be able to go up to the bleeding edge. So, I mean, from what I've heard about COVID, some of that uh, gain-of-function research for bat viruses started in North Carolina with some Chinese fellowship students. They went over to Wuhan. They carried on those experiments. uh, And the viruses that they're working on were pretty close to what we see is COVID, but I, you know, I haven't done the deep dive on that. So there are people like Jeff, Jeffrey Sachs who are more informed on that, but I know that uh, I see the government using the same playbook for cover-ups when they suspect an accident has happened. And, and definitely NIH funded some of that preliminary research. That's pretty well documented too. But first of all, there's a flat denial. Uh, they, convince the media to bury the story. And then there's censorship and shaming of the journalists who dare to ask questions. And I feel pretty strong. I have an engineering background and I worked at Stanford Medical School for 10 years. In order for science to advance, people have to be able to ask questions and debate things. And Anytime there's a scientific discovery, you need to throw it out there and let people put darts at it. And that's how science um, evolves. And if the government is censoring the basic information we have about a new outbreak, then we're going to be building an edifice of science on a bad foundation and it's going to hurt people. And I think that's what I see with Lyme disease that makes me so angry is that if in the beginning we had known that it wasn't just the Lyme disease bacterium that was making people sick, there were these other organisms in the ticks that makes it a complex, uh, a complex to diagnose and treat. 
But also the people involved, there was a lot of hubris, the scientists, they wanted to claim that they had, and the politicians, they wanted to claim that they had solved this epidemic and that just simple antibiotics would cure it two weeks or whatever. And that epidemic is one and done. And we see that with COVID too. (laughs) You know, it's like we've stopped tracking it. Uh, There's a lot of pressure not to look under the hood on the origin of it. And ultimately, I just think that harms the sufferers. Yeah, you you sent me um, uh, an article, I think, from 2019. So three uh, years ago, the Washington Post uh, did, I think, fact-checking you, and you you sort of highlighted responses. And I mean, it's I I'm with you. It's it's obvious, you know. Um, I had in July of 2020 an Associated Press journalist reach out to me wanting to interview me uh, about my interview with Boyle. And it was just really strange. She wanted to know all about me. And I'm like, what do I have to do with this interview with Boyle discussing Corona? It's about the topic. It has nothing to do with me. But then you kind of figure it's ad hominem character assassination. And I, I never responded to the guy. And I could see the article that came out, which didn't mention me because I didn't give the interview. It was a you know conspiracy theorist type uh, hit piece. And so uh, I just feel like, you know, Good things are that old uh, adage. Good things are done uh, openly, uh, and you know, evil or you know, corrupt things are are done in the darknesses, as you say. Whenever there's censorship, that just brings more uh, questions. And so, you know, any further thoughts on you know the criticism you've uh, uh, gotten this Washington Post piece, uh, you know, which it's owned by Jeff Bezos, which works closely with the the Pentagon and the military industrial complex. And so, you know, any further thoughts on the censorship that we've been seeing? Yeah, I, I find it, I found it to be very frustrating because I tried to be very factual in my book and say what we know, what we don't know, where scientists need to be looking to solve this mystery. And oh, by the way, government, we really, really need to release these documents. Normally there would be an automatic declassification. The biological weapons program has been canceled. So, you know, just release them. But instead, uh, FOIA after FOIA is, uh, they deny them or they come back redacted or they just, what's most common is just, you never get the responses. It just keeps getting put at the bottom of the pile. So um, now what was the original question I started getting on upset about FOIAs? It was, uh, oh, the, the Washington Post editorial. So what happened is my book came out in May 2019. Uh, it was a complete surprise to me that Congressman Chris Smith from New Jersey, which is a place that has a huge Lyme problem, he waved it up in front of C-SPAN and said, there's some credible information in this book. It's well documented. We need to help declassify and investigate the bug-borne weapons program. Because like you say, Jeffrey says, you release these bugs and there's no taking them back. Nature always wins. It's Pandora's box. And and so he's introduced it to the DOD, the investigation to the DOD budget three times in a row, and it's been rejected every time. But right after that, it became the book became an international news phenom because it just sounds like such a crazy thing. We're putting disease in bugs. No way. And it, it fit in with the conspiracy milieu at the time. And so, uh, but I think the government was worried. And there was a guy who works at a university, a professor, a, a veterinarian professor who also studies ticks. And he, he wrote this about a thousand word article 
uh, he didn't mention my book, but he linked the word conspiracy theories to my book. And it just, it was just infuriating because I think I counted 19 lies or mistruths, well documented by other respected authors who've covered this topic. And so I called him immediately. I said, hey, professor, have you, have you read my book? And, and he goes, oh, no, I don't have time to read books. And then he, I said, well, can I go over a couple things? And I think I had four of the biggest lies I went over with. And, and, I, and he just didn't say anything. And then I said, do you want me to send you a book? Oh, no, I wouldn't read it. Any, I'd shred it anyways, he said. So it was obvious that he, it just seems like he was put up by the military industrial complex and what he didn't include disclose in the op-ed was that the professor from Tufts and this, the rebuttal is on my website, www.chrisnewby.com. So you can read it in detail, but he, he failed to disclose in the op-ed that he was the director of a new biological bio level four research lab that is researching for example, tick-borne disease, tick-borne tularemia, which is a select agent, which is one of the the germs that the biosecurity people were worry about. It's very, very deadly. So there's no oversight by the Washington Post, and currently Washington Post has a policy where they fact check the op eds. But I also called the science editor of the Washington Post, and they said, "No, that we outsource that to a pay per." pay to play journalistic organization. It's their job to fact check it, not ours. And so they, they violated their own policies. They didn't, they didn't, the author didn't disclose his conflicts. They didn't fact check it. And so I've been trying for three years for them to at least edit it or remove it and they won't. So it's frustrating. And as I read historical documents, like during Vietnam, there's an oral history where one of the CIA guys involved in the Kennedy stuff said, oh yeah, we had journalists in our pockets in almost every media outlet, New York Times, Washington Post. So that hasn't stopped. And now it's these sort of astroturf third party content providers that give underfunded and overworked major media free content. It's free. Yeah. And I mean, it just goes to show, you know, we see Brian Stelter, get all these people getting fired from mainstream media, CNN plus failing, uh, Chris Cuomo. I think I don't even watch mainstream media. I don't, I think it was on CNN, but apparently he's trying to, they're trying to remake these images of these former mainstream journalists. I, I just, I'll be blunt. I mean, they're all, for me, they're, they're liars. They're part of the military industrial complex. They'll, they'll do whatever, uh, they'll say whatever they're told, uh, to say. And, um, you know, Chris Cuomo is trying to remake himself as some edgy anti-establishment, uh, journalist. Uh, and he's going to do a podcast. And that just goes to show that, you know, uh, a lot of us in the independent media podcasting space, we, I mean, we, we're just honestly looking for the truth. We're not afraid to be called names. We just want to know what's going on. And, you know, people are listening to us and not listening anymore to the mainstream media. So they're, they're trying to deal with this um, shift. And, you know, you know, for, for me, regarding Corona as well, I just kind of got suspicious when we saw all of these pandemic simulations um i don't know if this was done before you know in, in the 20th century as as often but we see from 2001 the dark winter 
exercise. And then we've got so many in the recent years, uh, SPARS, Crimson Contagion, Urban Outbreak, Event 201. But there were three, immediately preceding 2020, there were three simulations uh, running a coronavirus um, event, including China did in September of 2019 in, in Wuhan at the airport. They simulated uh, a coronavirus outbreak, which was just uh, interesting. But, uh, you know, any further thoughts on uh, SARS-CoV-2? You had mentioned it as well. Um, You you wanted to touch on, I don't know, Roswell or or, or other um, events or incidents that are important to what we've been discussing, you know, government cover-ups or the biodefense complex. Yeah, so they... Roswell is just an example of the government's playbook of cover-ups. And it's the same thing that happened with, you know, the alien things. Then it moved on to the uh, nerve gas accident at Dugway Proving Grounds. They refined their cover-up strategy there. And then we get to uh, now uh, COVID and Lyme disease. So, so, and, and that the playbook, as I see it, is flat denial convince the media to bury the the story, censorship, shaming, planting uh, this sort of half hybrid truth. So enough. So it's credible, like the professor who did the op-ed and no, no consequences for out and out lying. We, We see that a lot and then intimidate whistleblowers and then rewarding the cover up participants with lucrative consulting gigs. So that's that's very common. But I have to say, I'm not, after going through the nitty-gritty details of the, the Bugborn Weapons Program, I'm, I don't buy into this giant conspiracy and control thing. I, I, I think we can't un- underestimate incompetence and accidents because they're literally, for my uh, area of interest, they're literally hundreds and hundreds of open-air experiments in biological weapons and the probability of there being an accident is a hundred percent. So if I look at like the, the sheep kill because of the nerve gas experiment, yeah, there was one accident, but they did a hundred experiments with nerve gas the year before. And are you telling me there weren't any other breaches? They're releasing nerve gas in the air. Uh, so you, you can't underestimate incompetence. And the fact that the project was so large, this is the biological weapons program and the chemical, they had recruited scientists from 50 of our top universities to recruit talent, but they would only tell, they, they just gave them tiny little isolated pro, um, problems and they wouldn't tell them the real reason behind it. And then this is the start right after, right around 51 as it started the whole concept of military industrial complex that sort of was a brainchild of Ira Baldwin, who's the, vision, the bioweapons program visionary, because he realized he didn't have enough, have enough scientists to do this program. So he started going to industry too. Like, for example, General Mills, who, who puts Cheerios on your table every day, they, uh, they helped us, helped refine the, the airborne biological and anti-crop stuff. So they, they were really good at milling grains. So well, we can we can mill bacteria and anti-crop uh, agents and then figure out how to spray them. They spray the sugar on the Cheerios. <laughs> so I, I'm just saying it was so distributed and the chances of an accident are great. 
So that's, that's what I find uh, with the biological weapons program. There's an uncontrolled release of ticks in Alaska and tularemia, spring tularemia in Alaska, Baker Island off Hawaii. And then there's this whole class of biological weapons and assassination weapons that we can't even get to because it's buried in the CIA under MK Ultra and MK Naomi. And I just hope I get those documents before I die, <laughs> naturally or unnaturally. Uh, that'd be fascinating. But that reminds me of what you're talking about as well. Mosquitoes now. We see them playing with these, you know, Bill Gates and, you know, the, the complex dealing with these GMO type mosquitoes. And that's like another Pandora's box. What effect is that going to have if they release? Um, I mean, there's no the unintended consequences of that. I mean, I don't know if you've looked into that uh, at all. So I just have I had two conversations with people, scientists who I really trust. One uh, is Manu Prakash at Stanford, and he 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 works on low cost solutions to nasty worldwide problems in mosquitoes and he heard they were going to do a trial on hawaii and he went and said at a lecture in hawaii and said in the and the concept is you sterilize male mosquitoes genetically and then release them and then the females mate with the sterile males and uh, then you cut down the population of mosquitoes that carry nasty diseases like zika or malaria and he he said, don't do it. <laughs> you know? And then uh, I talked to someone at CDC who followed the Brazilian trial where they did release the GMO mosquitoes. And she said, you know what? A year later, there were more of those bad mosquitoes than the year they released the sterilized ones. So the thing is, these insects have such a fast reproduction cycle. They'll always win. Like we can change a couple genes, but we're we just the formula for mating mosquitoes is like beyond us for understanding. I mean, I think our whole strategy with fighting these diseases is balance in the ecosystem, which I'm working for a nonprofit called invisible internationals where we're fighting invisible diseases and we're, we're doing it in the one health framework that says, if you make a healthy environment and look at animals as sentry diseases, then you can raise the health of everything. And, Things need to be in balance. So <laughs> it's a new way of looking at things instead of through the eyes of pharma profits. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, they, they might end up making super mutant <laughs> mosquitoes, you know, as you said, that evolve and just make things uh, worse. And, uh, yeah, and it was lucky you, you got to meet Willie. Is it Bergendorf? I forget his last name. Ber Bergdorfer. Yeah, Bergdorfer. Ber I think he, he passed in 2015, so seven uh, years ago, right? Mm -hmm. 2017 i think ah okay yeah so i met him i met him during the filming of our documentary under our skin and he was retired at that time and he had really bad parkinson's and he said as an aside he feels like that may have been caused or triggered by when he was researching lyme disease right after the discovery he on a sunday he was cleaning out the rabbit cages of infected rabbits because he was going through the series of putting infected ticks on rabbits and seeing if the rabbits got the disease and then putting clean ticks on them and see if they could transfer the disease. So he, 
since text didn't work on Sunday, he went and cleaned out the rabbit cages and he feels like he got infected urine in his eye and that's how he got Lyme disease. And he actually retired early from the NIH because of that and a few other reasons. Um, so I, yeah. can't, I can't remember where I was going there. Yeah, but I, I just I, I thought it was also uh, interesting. You, you I, I caught in your book uh, mention of, I don't know if it was virus or some infectious disease, and uh, whether it was the disease or or the vaccines that caused the suppression of the human uh, immune system. And you know maybe that's something people are talking about long COVID or you know their adverse events with some of the COVID uh, injections, which. People are talking about uh, again uh, uh, a decline, a suppression of the human immune system regarding stuff related to COVID. Which you know, maybe if this was, as you said, a bio, or if this is related to bioweapons research, uh, this or you know, limes back then. Uh, you know, any thoughts on this suppression of the uh, um, the autoimmune system? Th these sorts of problems that that uh, are coming about. Yeah, I don't. I don't know about COVID and it's hard to research it with censorship on what gets published these days. But I know Lyme disease is a badass bacteria. It has like number one or number two number of chromosomes and it has these things called plasmids, which are circular chromosomes. It just allows it to shape shift more. And if you look at when a Lyme spirochyte, spirochyte goes into your body. Uh, a tick bite suppresses your immune system for about a week, so it has free reign. The spirochetes are about four times faster than your white blood cells that can gobble it up and protect your body. And then the, the Lyme bacteria has the spirochete form, which is like its super, super motor thing. And then it finds an immune protected site where your immune system doesn't go in your brain or your joints with scar tissue and it goes in when the when the too much immune action it goes into a cyst form it could be dormant and your body won't see it it also is able to shift its surface protein so your immune system can't see it so the fact is it's just a crafty bug and for the mainstream meta medicine to say you can cure it with two weeks of antibiotics it just doesn't work and that's why it has a high failure rate and so how can we yeah, I just question whether this new vaccine will work, the new Lyme vaccine. I mean, I hope it works. Everybody wants a nice, a good vaccine for Lyme disease, but it may not work for the same reason we don't have an AIDS vaccine right now. The, the bug itself is too crafty for a simple vaccine concept. Yeah, is there... I, I think the better the better strategy is to get a vaccine to prevent bites, <laughs> like a flea collar. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know. There are a lot of really good ideas in the works that, that might be better because it's not just Lyme disease. It's whatever this thing Willie was hiding. It's uh, 28 other tick-borne diseases. And you can get bitten by a tick and get multiple of those, two or three of them. And then your immune system is overwhelmed. It sounds like Frankenstein stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, is there are, are there any other issues you wanted to bring up or get across that you know I, I haven't pulled um, out of the book or that you're currently working on or, or you know uh, future research that you're looking into? Um, 
Well, I I have action items at the end of the book because I I feel bad I couldn't wrap up the mystery like a Law and Order episode, <laughs> everything in a nice tidy bow. But I I wish epidemiologists, the people that study the spread of diseases, will pick up where I left off. Three crazy tick-borne diseases, maybe a virus we don't know about, and and Willie never let us know what that other thing was that he felt was the bioweapon. Is it sitting in a freezer somewhere in the CDC? So epidemiologists, please run with this. Also, evolutionary biologists, we learned during the anthrax mailings that we could figure out, you know, for the, the anthrax that was released in the post office, exactly what flask that came from genetically. So people need to ask, Burley Bergdorferi, which has a very mysterious evolutionary past, according to some microbiologists. Uh, are there snippets of other diseases? Because we know Willy Bergdorfer was helping with gain-of-function research, where you had a tick and you were putting multiple germs in it to make it extra confusing when it bit an enemy. So can we really, do we have uh, valid samples in the gene bank for that disease and can can microbiologists and geneticists figure out what is inside this bug and same with what's inside the ticks and and then uh, i just wish public health would admit chronic lyme really exists and start seriously looking at treatments with a 30 percent treatment rate i've reviewed the last nine years of nih grants and we are spending less than 1% of our research budget on treatments for the people who are already sick. Why is that? <laughs> Why? Yeah, I had... And then, a, sorry, go ahead. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to mention that my, my uh, former pastor in Mexico, they went back to the U.S. and they spent tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, he, I guess he had Lyme um, and to, to treat it. And I, I don't know how he is lately, but uh, I think he's better. But for a time, he was bedridden. So, yeah, I mean, it's 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 not something, you know, I know someone who it's happened to. So it's 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 affecting people. Yeah. And everyone agrees the test is bad in the first month. And if the disease gets out of hand, you might not. It, it's really hard to treat it in later stages. And the cure is off patent, safe antibiotics. And you don't need much in the beginning if you are proactive about treating, but instead the medical society is afraid. I mean, everything about treatment off-label or without huge $1 billion randomized clinical trials, everyone's afraid to treat. And we need to say the, the, the crushing chronic diseases in this country right now, so we're looking at long COVID, MECFS, that's chronic fatigue, Lyme disease, it is going to bring this country to its knees unless we get proactive of making people well instead of treating sick people's symptoms with blockbuster drugs every day. So that's that's sort of my like soapbox rant. And that's why I've dedicated like the last 20 years is to trying to get evidence to the front lines of medicine to say, this is a huge problem that you're denying and insurance companies are denying it too. It's like, we don't want to pay for those expensive chronic diseases. So they're kicking the can down the road. That's the economics of big pharma. Um, 
again, okay. people people can get your book everywhere books are sold. Uh, Bitten, I got the Kindle because I'm traveling around the world and it's hard to lug physical books with you. Uh, and uh, I think that your website is Chris uh newbie.com i've signed up to your email list you know where, where, where are the best places to to go online to to find you and support your work um chris newbie.com and then invisible dot international is where i publish a lot of information on um, the science and the policy of invisible diseases so mostly we're focusing on uh tick-borne diseases and bartonellosis which is um a bacteria spread by it's called cat scratch disease commonly spread by flea bites cat bites rose thorns i mean you can get it a lot of different ways but it's a stealth pathogen that can give you neuropsych issues and come across as bipolar or depression or schizophrenia so that's and then we're we're focusing on one health so trying to bring vets together with humans uh, people, because a lot of times these diseases spread in families, especially with imported pets during COVID. A lot of foreign diseases are being brought to like unnatural places where there isn't protective immunity. So that's so that is a good source. And then we offer my foundation offers thirty plus uh, continuing medical education courses that patients can take for free, also. So that's useful if you think you have a disease and you want to learn more about it. I'll include the links in the description. What, what is One Health, though? I, uh... Okay, One Health, it's sort of like a buzzword that's adopted uh -huh. by WHO and CDC. But it's not just looking at one germ and one disease in humans. It's saying if you have a sick ecosystem, animals are going to get sick, people are going to get sick, plants are. So it's just working together. All those scientists are in silos now and trying to get them to work together. A lot of times animals around us get sick first and we're actually better at tracking the animal health than human health, which, which is problems with CDC. And we've seen that with tracking COVID and Lyme disease. So it's about how, like, getting these people to work together so we can be better at curing all diseases for animals and people. All right. Well, uh, again, I recommend uh, the book. Links will be in the description. Uh, you know, thank you for your research, your work, uh, and thank you for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Yeah, thanks for uh, letting me talk about things I'm most passionate about. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our pro account. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. 
My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.